Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, this month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. And we're hearing about a lot of roadblocks. So I think this is necessary stuff to do. Today, we get to hear from two writers. Lauren Aguirre and Anjali Mitterduva. Good morning, ladies. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you Good for morning. Having us. Now, everyone in the chat, feel free to chime in. You can echo um, if you're having some of the same problems. You can echo uh, the problems. If you have your own solutions, you can um, put those in the chat as well. And then people watching the recordings can also see the chat. So that can be really, really helpful. So Lauren Aguirre, she's in our novel, uh, our Grub Street novel incubator course, but she's also a nonfiction writer. She's a science writer and producer, and she's the author of the 2021 nonfiction book, The Memory Thief, and the secrets but about, oops, I'm screwed that up, The Memory Thief. I've forgotten how to say that. Um, and the secrets behind how we remember, a medical mystery. And I do recommend this book a lot. Um, Anjali Mitterduva is the author of the historical novel, Faint Promise of Rain, which is a beautiful book. And she's also the co-founder of Galliot Press. Am I saying that right, Anjali? You are, you are. And we're so excited about this press coming up. She calls it a new publishing company ushering in a sea change for, for the written world. Word. And when you hear Anjali talk about what they're planning to do with this press, it's really exciting because they're really trying to do things differently when it comes to publication and when it comes to treatment of authors. We actually, I actually have an interview of her, um, gosh, from last spring, I think it was, yeah. um, talking more about the press. Yeah. And you can also find more about the press online. Okay, we're going to get to our listeners' questions. Today, we are talking research, 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 research. Um, and... Let's see. We've actually got, I got two audio messages about this and I got uh, one written out message about this. So a lot of people are dealing with this issue. By the way, you can still submit your audio recordings and your uh, written paragraphs to 7am novelist at substock.com if you have a problem that you want us to talk about. Okay, first, let's see. First, we have Judy. She's not only worried about research, but she's worried about the internet. Here is Judy. <laughs> this is Judy. The internet is both a boon to research and a bomb to progress. Falling down that internet rat hole is one of my biggest problems in making progress, period. The other is not knowing entirely where this book is going. So that is Judy. We actually had two of our authors use the word rat hole when it comes to research. By the way, if you don't know where your book is going, you're doing it right. Okay, just so you guys know that. I know Donald Bartome wrote a whole essay. I think the essay is simply called Not Knowing, how this is a necessary part of writing. Um, if you have it all planned out and you know exactly where you're going, there's no discovery or surprise, you, you kind of lose interest and momentum. So if you don't know where you're going, I say you, you are exactly doing it right. Okay, but back to research. Um, and here is Kathleen talking about a similar, the same thing. Hi, Michelle, this is Kathleen. 
My question today uh, for you and for your guests is on research. I'm working on a novel that is historical fiction and in the stage of revision or one of the many, many, many stages of revision. Um, and I'm finding myself having to continue research, mostly to fix mistakes, um, occasionally to add new bits of um, historical accuracy. And I do have a tendency to get absolutely lost down the rabbit holes. Um, they're fascinating and endless, but I'm still finding myself spending an inordinate amount of time in research rather than in the process of writing or revision. So I'm just wondering if anybody has any tips on how they deal with that balance, whether they're writers of historical fiction or not. Um, certainly murder mystery writers can get lost in the weeds of researching poison, for example, for their books. So I'm just curious about different um, suggestions or tactics for dealing with this balance. Thank you. Fabulous. And I love that Kathleen was like researching poison for their books. She needed to add that in. Um, so Kathleen, I mean, the difference here is Kathleen is a little further along in her book. She knows where she's going, but she's having to um, check up on her research. Judy sounds more like she's at the beginning. And then we also have Paula, who very eloquently in a wonderful rush of writing said, fear of research holds me back. Fear that it is necessary and that I haven't done enough of it. Fear that the internet is both vast and shallow and that the best resources are in books or microfiche that I will never be able to find or wend my way through. Fear that I don't even know what I don't know in order to commence research. Fear that I don't know where to begin to search for the resources I need nor whom to ask. Fear that I can't afford the research. That's a big one. Travel to another country. That might really help. Fear that I once get start once I get started, I get lost, not just in the research, but in the myriad new directions the research might take me. Fear that I may lose hours, if not days, and weeks, and glean only one detail for one sentence. Fear that if I don't dive in and do the necessary research, my work will not only lack authenticity, it will lack the spark that can make it fully come alive. Fear that all of this angst over research is keeping me from writing the parts of the story I do know well enough to write now. Okay. I think a lot of people have this very same issue. Uh, you guys are not alone. Um, in the chat, if you have suffered from the same research angst, feel free to echo that. Um, we're going to start with Anjali because she's focused mostly on uh, fiction. Yeah, Cam, Cam says amen. Okay, Anjali, what do you think? Have you ever found yourself with this difficulty? Oh no, no, I've just, I've just never written off. Yeah, I've written my books in a one-year flat done all the research no of course of course this is this is a huge topic this is um this this can you know drive one to go off the rails for sure so i'm glad i'm glad that it came up um i am answering or answering these questions um, as a fiction writer as you said specifically uh as a historical fiction writer uh, like one of our um question question posers and um uh, just for context, I, so I've written two books. Uh, one came out more years ago than I'd like to admit, <laughs> which is uh, Faint Promise of Rain, and one which I just sent to my agent um, a couple days ago. So uh, the research process was completely different for me, for both of them. And both historical fiction, both set in India, different times in history. Um, and it was interesting because the first one 
which is set in the 1500s in, uh, in northern India, I was worried that there was not enough information out there for me to find, specifically in a language that I could read. And I was terrified that I spent a lot of time just making sure that I was right, that there was not that much out there. Um, and, but there weren't, there weren't very many written records from little villages in, in Northwest India, in Rajasthan in the 1500s. And that was kind of freeing, I have to say. It was, uh, it was like, okay, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to spend all this time, as much time down the, I've always called it rabbit hole, which makes it sound like cute. <laughs> You know, the rat hole is like, if I'd known it was a rat hole, maybe I would have gotten out of there faster. <laughs> but anyway, I'll stay with the warm, fuzzy rabbit imagery. Um, so so for my first book, what I ended up doing is, um, although there was that relief, then there was like, oh, well, shoot, I, I got to make a lot of things up. And... I think that first book taught me uh, to rely a fair amount on um, remembering the difference between truth and accuracy um, and reminding myself that I was writing about people and human nature and um, certain aspects of that that are universal across space and time. Um, things like uh, conflict between parents and their children, you know, different ideas, changing traditions, fear of change, the sort of hot-headedness of adolescence. Some things I'm fairly confident were there in 1500s India. Um, and so anytime I felt that I was, I didn't know what I was talking about or I didn't know what I was doing or there was this vacuum around me um, that I had to come out somehow Phil, I try to remind myself of that. Um, and for anybody sort of really wanting to think more about that, especially if you're writing historical fiction, I know Hilary Mantel, uh, who passed away recently. I, I don't know, was it recently? It was probably a few years ago now, right? It still feels like really that recent. Exists now. All right. In the last five years. Um, yeah. She wrote. She wrote and spoke a lot about this because for, for those of you who've read her her novels, you know they're they're chock full. They're full of stuff and so much so that um, I guess there was some controversy about historians feeling like maybe she was portraying history incorrectly. Um, so she she has a series of talks actually on the BBC. They're called the BBC Lectures. So if you look her up, you can you can. But the point is to remember that that you don't need to have every single detail. You don't need to have, um, even if what, what somebody is wearing, you don't need to put the full description of what they're wearing. You need those few details that are gonna help your story along. And you might not know right away what those details are, um, but, but just a reminder, like I don't need it all. And I know what I'm doing and I know people and I know my story. Um, so I did, a, I did a lot of that for my first book and, uh, and then I relied on, um, well, I was lucky enough to have been already to the location and we, later on, I could talk about sort of what you do when you need to, you feel like you need to go to a place you can't necessarily afford it. I had already spent time as a kid in, uh, Rajasthan and particularly in the city that, uh, that the story is set in and conveniently it's a UNESCO world heritage site. It doesn't look very different from it did how it did in 
the 1500s. Um, so, so I relied on that. I relied on the fact that my character was a dancer and I studied this form of dance for 20 years. And so I tried to, you know, embody her in that space. Um, and then, and then I filled in details as they came up, as I realized I needed them, little ones that really helped set the place and the time. Um, like what is the type of bird that flies over in its migratory journey from the Himalayas, you know, during that time of year, those things I wanted to get right. Um, I have a scene with somebody on a horse. I don't ride horses. I went on YouTube and I analyzed, there's a lot of footage of horses, um, specifically the, the, how the, how the feet hit the ground in different ways when they're at a trot and a canter, all that kind of thing. So I was able to zero in on those types of details um, and fill in, you know, other things uh, just from general knowledge of the history. But my second book, which I won't talk about as long, but um, second book is completely different. 1800s India. There is so much written records. There's Google books. There's the journals of the wives of the officers who were stationed the East India Company. There is so much, and I had the opposite problem. And I can talk about that later if there's time because I, I, I wanna switch to Lauren, but um, it was the opposite end of the spectrum. And I went down those rabbit holes and rat holes and mole holes, <laughs> all the holes. Uh, and I had to be super organized about the research. And I had to sometimes, if I found myself, this is the last thing I end with for the moment, is if I found myself really going far down that hole and being interested and not wanting to stop, be it online or even in a book, um, I would just stop. Actually, I would just stop, sort of take a step back and make a note because I kept a meticulous list of my sources and make a note and say, this, this one is really good for, you know, the clothing that people wore in the temples or whatever it was. And, and that's it. And then I knew that it was there because I think sometimes the fear was like, I'm not going to find this when I need it. So when you find it, even if you think I might need it, but I'm not sure, but it's so fascinating. I want to hang on to it you can do that, you can bookmark it, you can say which library you found it on, so you can find it again. Um, and so that was my approach for dealing with the, there's too much out there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Good, good. I mean, <laughs> my for ideas. my second novel, I actually changed the war that I wanted to deal with from second war to first war because the second war was too big. And I'm so mm -hmm. glad I did because there was so much more in the first war that was useful to me particularly with the subjects I was talking about than that. I mean, we just have to remember that there is a difference between fiction and nonfiction. And Lauren's going to talk a lot about that. But always remember, I mean, this is still fiction. Yeah. Um, and even if you do all the research and even if you get it all right, someone is probably still going to complain. You're still going to get, I'm sorry, some old 90-year-old guy is going to stand up at the back of your reading and complain how you got something wrong, even if you're right. I've had that a number of times. I've also had a famous writer tell me, uh, correct me about when uh, electricity uh, was was common in the United States and that I needed to change that in my book. Um, she's one of my favorite writers. She's absolutely stunning. She's just a genius, but she didn't know that the Midwest was so behind in getting mm. electricity, particularly to the rural areas. And in the forties, a lot of them still did not have electricity. So. 
there's just always going to be something slipping. There's always going to be. So paying attention to that human emotional, the human quotient of the book is the most important always. All right, Lauren. Um, yeah, I just want to say uh, what, what Angeli was saying about if you find a great source and you get super excited and you're, you know, you're, you know, kind of you're spending too many hours on that. It's great to write it down because also um, I think Paula had said she was afraid that she would spend hours and hours on mm -hmm. some detail that wasn't needed. And I think that can happen. So you've invested all this time in figuring out something wonderful. And it turns out it's not helpful for your story. And it might even like derail your story because you're spending all this time on something that doesn't push your protagonist, you know, to, to change. Um, so, but yes, so I start from a nonfiction background. So you have to do tons and tons of research um, and getting it right is sort of non-negotiable. I think there's still that tendency to want to keep researching because writing the story, at least for me, is harder. Um, and so when you're researching, you're still in that happy stage where this book could be anything, um, you know, and I could go in this direction or that direction. Um, and so researching, I would often know when I needed to be done at a point when one expert, I could tell one expert that they ought to talk to this other expert. And then you kind of know that, you know, your world well enough. Um, so for me on the novel, I started with um, I was interested in epilepsy and I, so I said, interesting, you know, famous people in history who had epilepsy, um, <laughs> just, you know, noodling around. And I discovered that Mark Twain's youngest daughter had epilepsy, um, and died in the bath on Christmas Eve from a seizure. And I just, that sort of got me, um, thinking, okay, what was it like to have an illness back then when there was no treatment, when um, you were kind of shuttled off to various places so you wouldn't be part of society. So that, I didn't have a story, I just had a time um, that really, really spoke to me. Um, and so in terms of getting like how much time to spend, I probably spent a month really reading about epilepsy at the time I, I drove out to a, a colony because it was inexpensive to go to um, and the grounds were still there and sort of immersing myself in the place was really helpful not even just so much to describe it but just to feel like this was real like people actually lived lives here and what would that have been like so I think like research for me is really energizing um but you can go too far, as I was saying, and like get so fixated on details that are kind of irrelevant. So, um, so it's a matter of winnowing down those details that make a difference to that character. Um, what and and you know what is going to make him or her um, again have to change? And I mean, I think the other beauty of getting all those details right in historical fiction is the specificity um, because then you're there. And, you know, I'm very interested in neuroscience. So the more kind of senses you can engage and the more novelty you can engage, the more your reader will pay attention. Oh, wow, that's, that's different. Or, you know, I never thought about what it would have been like to live at a time when candles stunk because they were made of tallow. <laughs> 
Um, and what if, you know, my protagonist had morning sickness and couldn't escape the tallow and what would that have been like? Um, so for me, it's definitely been um, a learning experience of, okay, you, you learn all this cool stuff and you want to share it, but what do you share so you create a world where your protagonist is constantly bumping up against that and, and the people around her? So and um excellent excellent um you know sometimes when I have get stuck in the rabbit hole or moth hole or whatever you want to call it um sometimes I'm like well I'm I'm learning something about the world mm -hmm. and this is good it makes me a fuller human being it makes me you know I liked having that knowledge and it's better than scrolling on random things on the internet or watching, you know, you know, some stupid TV or something. Um, so I try sometimes when I do get sucked in, I try not to necessarily think of it as time wasted. And oftentimes I'll, I'll learn things that I can use elsewhere. Um, at the same time, um, you can sometimes research can really stop you. So I remember in my first book, uh, I was working off a diary and my, my, um, the person writing the diary claimed that she'd seen a meteorite land in Iowa. And I was like, a meteorite landed in Iowa? And I looked up the specific year and I looked up all sorts of weather events and all sorts of events. And I couldn't find heads or tails of this supposed meteorite that burnt, uh, she said, burnt fields around it for miles in all directions. And I thought my grandmother had just, my great grandmother just made it up. So when I finally did the book, I actually had the character kind of she's she's in a kind of a funk and she kind of you know imagines this happening um i i read it in front of a, a group of of at a senior living facility and i told them the same story and i said yeah this probably didn't happen but i still wanted to use it so i used it more metaphorically and they said oh i remember that meteorite <laughs> and so you can have i mean actual written research can also mislead you um, from from memory and and from people's experience of their lives. So so be suspicious of it that way. I also remember um, in my second book, I didn't know what happened to the sisters in my story. And I thought I needed to, to research that more and ask more of my, my family what happened. And I was doing a, an event with Simon Maurer who wrote The Glass Room. And he's a, he's a British writer. He's done extremely well with his novels. And he says, don't do it. Don't keep researching. And the reason why he said that is that he thought it would stunt the story, the vision of the story that I already had. And honestly, it would have. I already had a vision of the story that I wanted to tell. I already had a feeling for these young women. I already wanted to say a certain something. So if I actually had found out more that could have gotten in a way of my process, and again, it is historical fiction. So sometimes finding out information can get in your way. Um, sometimes it can be the nugget that gets you there, but sometimes it can get in your way. I know that um, Edward P. Jones, I've talked about this before for his novel, The Known World, he was in a teaching position he had a sabbatical for one semester and he realized that he could either spend the sabbatical doing the research for the novel or writing the novel. And what do you think he did? He decided to spend it writing the novel. He said, well, I think I already know enough about 1800s Virginia. So I'm just gonna go for it. And he did and he won the Pulitzer Prize for that book. It is an, an incredible book. And it's interesting that it's called The Known World. Right, yeah. <laughs> Even though he actually put 
research aside, I also know that Jim Crace of one of my favorite novels called Being Dead, um, he uh, made up so there's it's it's a beautiful book. It's one of my favorite, but it's about two bodies that are rotting on a beach, which sounds awful, but it's not. Um, and the bodies, they go through all the changes of the bodies. Insects come in, um, different birds and mammals start to eat the body. The whole process of how the body rots, he made up. And And both of these authors, when they're asked about this, they say, well, they, they just say, well, could you tell? Because if you couldn't tell, what difference does it make? It just made a good story. And, and I, you know, I think about this and I wonder sometimes too, if, if I don't know if, if, if these guys just do, or, or women more are worried more about getting it wrong or right. And they just, and these guys just kind of gave themselves um, the chance to just do it. Um, Jim Crace says, you know, why can't I make up the insects for this? Fiction is the stuff of dragons. Why fiction is the stuff of trolls living beneath bridges? Why can't I make things up? So remember that you're always writing about um, historical fiction. Um, I, Andre, I, yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. I, Go ahead. I, I have a thought about this. Um, you know, the research. I think for me, at least, I, I don't think of there's the research and there's the writing. It's always this multi-layered back and forth, back and forth, entwined process. And I usually start really wide. I start with reading books of, you know, history or just like the bigger topics to try to get a sense of um, the political climate and the you know actual climate and, you know, the the context. And then and then I, I also write at the same time, like I'm I'm back and forth, but constantly between story and research, story and research, and gradually it gets like a funnel, like more and more focused. And, and um, you know, then I'll get maybe to this lower, sort of, I'm doing a triangle here for people who are gonna be listening, sort of a, a V shape. And as you get down towards the, the finer part of the V, I'm like, oh, right. I read at some point down one of those rabbit holes, I found this book that had exactly this stuff. Let me go look at my source list. And now I'm gonna actually take the time to read the chapters in that book because I know I have more confidence that that's stuff that I wanna put in my book. Um, but somebody had a really important question about what if you can't afford the research? Um, and I just, yeah. I wanna to touch on that for a second because that's huge. Um, and, I'm a, I'm a very sensory writer. I, I need to have, as in, I like to rely on conveying sensory details to, to, to the reader. And so I have a hard time. Some people are like, oh, just fill in, you know, whatever she ate, it doesn't matter. You just fill it in later when you do the research about the food. And for me, that's really hard because the smell of the food may evoke some memory, which I could, it, to me, it's like, oh, but what food she's eating it could change the whole story, like the butterfly wing effect. But um, but you can do a lot. You can do a lot and a lot and a lot without going to the place. And um, it's not to say you shouldn't. I think if you possibly can, I recommend it. But it doesn't mean you can't write a story set somewhere um, that you haven't been. I think talking to people we're forgetting how to talk to people we think of research right now as internet and then maybe books and then you know podcast or there's movies um there's all kinds of things and then maybe we remember there's librarians but then who are amazing um 
but then there's just experts in the field. There's people who live the experience. People love to talk and they're going to give you, they're going to have siphoned out already the stuff you don't really need or a lot of it. They're going to zero, they're going to give you those details that you might not even have found some other way. Um, so for, for my second book, I had a young kid. I didn't feel like oh, this is my own problem, but I felt like I couldn't justify spending the money and the time away from my own research on my book. I waited until I had a full draft because I was like, I have to be really efficient and effective in my research. I get one shot. I'm going to go to this one city in India. Look now, I'm going to have basically a week and I need to use every minute there really efficiently. And so I waited until I had probably even revised the first draft. I was on second draft. And then, then I was feeling like, okay, okay, I really need to see what the view is like from this building when you're standing on it. Or, And I had a list of specific things to research. And that trip was amazing. It was chock full. Um, and a dear friend came with me, which was amazing because I was also a little nervous, um, especially personally speaking as a woman traveling alone, going to places I don't know what do you do when you go out to dinner? Like, I don't want to be by myself in restaurants all the time. All that stuff came into play. So, but you can, um, you can wait and you can wait until you've, you're further along in the story and you feel more confident and you, you know more what you're doing or you think you do um, to do that research. And in the meantime, you can talk to people. You, we can, we can pick up the phone and talk to people in those countries. We can ask our questions and people love to answer that kind of thing. They love to talk about themselves and their experiences. And um, you can even say, what is it smelling like right now? I know it's monsoon right now. You know, if you open your window, what does it sound like? And you'll get some of those details. So yeah. another thing you can do if you can't afford to go somewhere is um, to bring one of the objects from that time to you. So everyone's gonna see my pajamas for a second. I'm gonna get something. <laughs> She uh she she wore the wardrobe of the seven a.m. novelist, which was I'm in my is, pajamas too. I'm in my nice yes, you have to, yes. It's like still being so, in bed. So one of my characters um, was really into birding, and um, they use these opera glasses for birding. So I found an old, relatively inexpensive set of opera glasses, and I went outside with it and played with it and figured out how to use it, and then later. She also uses opera glasses in an operating room to look at the surgery. So I just have this on my windowsill and hold it in my hands. I know what it feels like. Um, and then the other thing I bought was a stenography book mm, not nice. long, long ago, because she was also a, a stenographer. So you can kind of surround yourself in that world in inexpensive ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Dan says in the chat, and he reminds us, uh, Laura Hildebrand, author of Seabiscuit, never travels to places her books are set because she has chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, I mean, sometimes you simply can't, and if you're a historical novelist, it might actually get in the way because those places are gonna have changed to such an extent. Yeah. You know, the light and the weather might be the same, but the smells could be very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, for my second book, I, I thought I was gonna actually place it in an entirely different city. And I actually traveled there because I got a cheap ticket. And I walked around and I got so uh, annoyed that it was all overbuilt and everything. And I really couldn't see around it. I couldn't imagine around it. So I just, it, I just could not write it in that city. Not, not even because it wouldn't have worked. I probably could have still made it work, but my imagination got blocked up because of that. 
Um, and I know other writers ha have tried to write about Russia or try to write about other other places. And and when they go there, um, it is so changed from what they had imagined it to be, what um, other writers and people who used to live at that time had lived it to be, that um, it became a, a big problem for them. Um, and I also, you know, we hear this all the time. I, I I can't remember who said this, but but there was a writer who said, yeah, sometimes writers talk to me and they say, oh, I'm so afraid that my book is not going to turn out to be the way I, I imagine it can be. And the author just said, it won't. Right. Um, and again, I, I the same thing. Oh, I'm worried I'm going to get it wrong. You're going to get something wrong. You are going to get something wrong. Um, so that's just part of of what writing a historical novel or writing almost any kind of novel is. Um, but, uh, you know, even in nonfiction, I think even nonfiction writers get things wrong, even though they have their publishers to help second, uh, second check that stuff. I mean, you can wait also for the later in the publishing process to second check on some things if you're really, really worried about them. I mean, Lauren, for you, is it just freeing to be able to do fiction versus nonfiction? Right. Um, it's been a process getting there, and I appreciate your <laughs> helping me get there. Um, you know, I think some things you cannot change when World War II began and, and ended, um, and you really can't change the kind of the mores of the time. Um, you know, what Angeli was saying earlier about truth versus accuracy. But, um, you know, my son will often read stuff for me, which is great, and his comment on the opening was, I love it, but you know, January 1st, 1907 was a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. There's a calendar, you can look that up actually. Okay, um, that's something I could have fixed later, but also, you know what? I think we're lucky if people are paying enough attention to read it that carefully and say that's wrong. Um, I'll, you know, I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah it's interesting. Um, I think on that topic, especially for historical fiction, Sometimes you're really far along in your story and it's all working you know, well. Sometimes there are those brief moments you feel that way. And then you find some little detail and you're like, oh, oh, oh no. And, um, you know, in some respects, the author's note is your friend. If there's, not for every tiny little thing, you have to draw the line for yourself. Where is it okay? Like you said, you can't change the dates of the big start and end of a major war, for example. Um, some some little things you can, I mean, I can, I'll speak for myself. I feel like some little things I can move around a little bit. Um, I, I found out that this one, not major character in history, but who has a little cameo appearance, died on a certain day and I had it literally a week later. Eh, you know, it didn't, that to me didn't, I didn't even feel like I needed to put that in an author's note. But for example, for my first book, which was set, which was set in a, a place and time which was going to be doubly foreign to most of my Western readers, which was Northwest India in the 1500s. Like even people in India don't necessarily know what was going on in there <laughs> in the 1500s. Um, I had to simplify some things because already so much of it was going to be a lot for the reader to absorb. And, and I was asking the reader to come along on this fairly complex journey. And so I had to simplify things like I talked about a Krishna temple. Like Krishna was not a deity that was worshipped at that time in that place. Uh, but it was, it kind of served the purpose of my story. And it was something that if 
people knew had read anything about India, like that might resonate, that might be more familiar, that could be something that they could look up. And so I put that in the author's note, because that I was like, okay, a lot of people are going to know, anybody who knows India well, or that region well, or history of that region well, is going to say, ain't no Krishna worshipping taking place in 1500s Rajasthan. So I had to acknowledge that. And I explained why. So if you, well, you might need to make a couple of decisions like that. Uh, I think as long as you have a good reason that you can articulate to yourself and that you can, if necessary, articulate to the 90-year-old guy in the back who, who challenges you on it, um, if you feel like you want to address that at all, uh, as long as you have intention and and it's serving the story uh, and the emotional truth of the story, I think it is okay. It's like, like Michelle said, you said, it's, it's still fiction. Um, and so don't get too hung up on the, on the on the details i think emotional truth is very very important and and lauren something you said about the day and time of the week um i want to go back to um but one of our uh listeners in the chat said and refused to be done matt bell says he only lets himself take notes during research by writing what he's learned directly into the exploratory draft of his novel he said this keeps him from going down rabbit holes that aren't relevant and keeps the words going on the page hmm. um so and that is probably most part what I do. I only, I am usually working on a scene where I might hit an obstacle that I feel like I need to look something up, but then I can use it directly in the scene. Um, and there have been times that I've found something I'm like, like, oh shoot, this isn't going to work. Oh shoot. But it actually turns out to be even better. Mm, um, happens, so sometimes yeah. always try to think around that initial reaction. Oh, this is going to block me. Oh, this isn't going to work. And think, no, I can actually use this. This is really a gift. But thinking about the actual time and date, I mean, even in even in third person, but a pick, particularly in first person, um, your character is remembering, usually because we usually write in past tense is more common than present tense. Um, the character is usually remembering back about their lives. Are they going to be able to remember the correct day of the week? They are not. Are they going to be able to remember when a particular snowstorm happened? They are mm -hmm. not. So if you're actually following honestly to your character's memory, to your character's experience, to the emotional truth um, and the way we live our lives, um, I would um, I, make sure you're following your character far more um, than you're following anyone else. Um, where do you, Lauren, where do you keep your notes? We've got somebody, we've got people asking about how do you keep your notes? Lauren, how about you? I keep them in Scrivener um, yeah. because it has such a good search function. And then I can just search candles and anything that I've discovered about candles yeah. will pop up. And I, um, if there's a picture that really um, spoke to me, then I might cut and paste that mm -hmm. into Scrivener. Right. Scrivener is right. great in, in, in that regard because you can, I use Scrivener as well. Um, my first, actually my first book, um, I, I, it was all the actual index cards. And uh, then I, I graduated to Scrivener for my second book. But having something, wherever you keep it with something that's searchable is, is super important, like keyword searchable. Um, and Scrivener is nice because you can also, um, like Lauren said, like put in a photo or a link or an audio file. You can, you can shove it all in there, which is, which is super. 
Yes, and lose it. And maybe sometimes you need to lose it too. <laughs> um, and also somebody was talking about where do you put, she was actually talking about an author note. I, I got that wrong. Um, you can always put an author's note in the back of your book saying, you know, explaining what kind of research you did or didn't do, explaining mm -hmm. your reasons for doing something, whatever you, whatever you want to do. That's definitely something that you can put in your novel or uh, yeah, in your novel or short story. Okay, we're going to have to go because I mean, we could keep talking about this. Um, but everyone, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Lauren, any last words on breaking through your writing obstacles? Um, I would say talking to people. Angeli mentioned talking to um, people from the time, um, and that can be great to kind of get you re-inspired, but also just telling people what your book is about mm -hmm. um, reminds you why you are excited about it. Um, yes. So that's helpful for me. So if anyone yeah. wants to have coffee so I can tell them about my book, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> yes, Angeli. Um, yeah, you know, scribbling down some notes this morning, thoughts, um, as I mentioned, uh, Michelle, I actually taught a Grub Street class on, on research, uh, which now I'm like, huh, maybe I should do that again. Um, but anyhow, I had this idea, which I don't know if it would work, but I kind of want to try it, uh, in terms of uh, stopping doing the research or, or, uh, you know, not going down those animal holes, um, which is what if you set a timer? For like 30 minutes into whatever your research time is and when that timer goes off however you're using it uh you could probably program it even to say do you need to be doing this is this yeah. useful like a reminder but then it could be sort of like jolted out of the process and uh so i kind of feel like maybe i need to do that for myself and i i had a had an, an orange couch that i wrote on and a red couch that oh. i researched on and so if I wanted to do a research, I actually had to get up and go to the other room. Oh, I love that. I made a room for myself. And lots of times I was like, oh, I don't want to get up and go to the other room. Do I really want to, do I really want to get up? Do I really want to stop now? So actually even physically forcing yourself to make a change so that you actually feel the movement and moving away from your writing could help as well. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, Lauren and Andre. Thank you so much for helping us. And I love seeing all the ideas and, and energy in the chat. And I hope you all um, are able to forge forward today and forget some of that research. If you have to do research, try to enjoy it. <laughs> try to realize that you're alive and you're learning something. And, uh, and then get back to the writing anyway, because this is fiction. All right. Happy writing.